going to turn to God's Word now, and we've been following Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're at chapter 4, so I'm going to be reading the first nine verses of this, this, this letter that is so full of joy, and this letter that is so full of encouragement, and let it bring God's Word to us this morning. Let's read. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. And thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning as we come to this passage from your ancient word that it would speak again into our situation today. Renew us, fill us, and hold us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the big themes in the Bible is this theme of peace. We'll be remembering it just in next month, as the children have already started rehearsing with the, for the nativity. Those words will come, aren't they? The angels to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill to all with whom God's favor rests. We find it on the lips of Jesus, John chapter 14, where he says, my peace I leave with you, a peace that nothing in this world can give you. The risen Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples in the Easter story, almost every time he appeared to them, he said the same words, peace be with you. Know my peace. And it picks up that great theme in the Old Testament that we sing at every baptism and at other times too. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace, shalom, wholeness. In the passage we've read, it's, it's mentioned twice. In verse 7, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. And then at the end of the passage in, chapter, in verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. So if you're going to out with one word from a theme today, it would just be that peace. But what does peace mean? 
And I suppose in conventional language, it means different things to different people. There's quite a lot of parents here, and I know know what peace can mean for you, can't it? Just the absence of of those voices that are constantly asking questions and making demands as you're able to escape for a little while for a walk or away from it. And peace is often associated with that, isn't it? Escaping away from the busyness of the office, away from wherever it is that there's the pressure to a bath or a walk or a time to listen to music or solitude of some description. It's amazing, though, how this year has changed that for many of us. Solitude, quietness, the absence of every pe- other people, the absence of the chit-chat, which sometimes seemed like a blessing, now quite easily feels like a curse, doesn't it? We are too quiet. It's too peaceful. The isolation brings its own anxiety and its own stress that actually we begin to relax when we can see people again and be with people again, and that brings a different type of comfort. We are not made for empty rooms. I don't even know that we're made for coastal walks on our own as much as I enjoy them. We are not made to have an inability to gather and to meet and to celebrate and rejoice together. So, When Paul began to write this passage, one of the things we need to remember is that perhaps he related to the situation we find ourselves in just now. It was written from lockdown. It was written from a prison cell. It was written by a man who was on his own, who had known not just being in prison, but had actually known that the friends he'd come with, many of them had left him. And there he was, writing a letter in a prison cell. And perhaps as we we think about that, these words in verse 1 become real. My brothers and my sisters, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown. You can see the man, can't you? Just the human side of this, longing to be with these people. He just wants to be in Lydia's house in Philippi, and he imagines having all those folk around him and and, and rejoicing and singing songs again and, and all the things that he wants to do. Today, I'm very much aware that there are far more folk watching us than are present with us just now. And we thank God for DVDs, and we thank God for phones that people can listen into, and we thank God for the internet, and all these ways that we can keep in touch. It's even quite good that some folk are able to come, and there might be people here that are watching today, and it's it's been useful that you've been able to come anonymously to church and explore it without all the pressures that sometimes being there brings. And I hope at the end of this, we will have a new understanding. But here's the thing. What is it we long for? It's to gather, isn't it? We're not made to be alone. We're made to be together. There's something basic about church that is fellowship, is togetherness, is, is, is whether it's over a coffee or a, or a, a lunch or, or a service, it doesn't matter. It's something about people. That's what we were made for. And so we, with Paul, long and, and yearn to be able to be together again. I hope when this is all over that many of us will have a new understanding of what it means to be housebound a new compassion for those who can't come and gather in a place. I hope when this is all over, we'll have a new motivation to think 
that we need to be, as a church, people who create community, not just inviting folk to our things, but actually as we are standing with our neighbors, clapping the NHS, those that we did months ago, getting to know people around us, that actually we begin to appreciate all this interaction and people and use it as a means to bring blessings and invest in our community. This matters. Of course, sometimes when we gather with other people, it becomes about us, doesn't it? I have needs, and you will meet them. And we begin to use people. I wonder if you can relate to this, coming into church meeting or a gathering, wherever it is, and you, you look around and you think, who'd be interesting to talk to today? Where are my friends? Where will I get the conversations that I need? And we perhaps miss the room that there's somebody else who needs us more than we need them. Paul, as he talks here about longing for his brothers and sisters to be with them, there is a sense that he's not saying here just, I need you, I need your company, I need your fellowship. He's looking at these people and he's saying, I long for you. I long to bless you. I long to see you built up and encouraged and growing. That's the whole theme of this letter, is Paul saying to the Philippians, I just want to see you flourishing and being filled with joy. And that model, I suppose, comes from what we find in the Gospels. Jesus was constantly surrounded by people, and yet it wasn't that Jesus was saying, oh, I, I need an adoration, a, a, adoring fans, and I need people that will listen to me because uh, that make me feel good and all these things. It was actually that in the middle of all these people, Jesus was serving, Jesus was loving, Jesus was caring, and Jesus was including the person in the crowd who still felt lonely and isolated and unloved. Deep community that Jesus begins to teach us to value. It's what the church has always, should always have been about, bringing together slave and free, men and women, rich and poor, into that deep fellowship of community. And the church is called in doing that to offer a model to the world of what it might mean to live together in peace, in love, in joy. Maybe you're wincing already. The church as a model of community to the world? Goodness sake, you don't know what my church is like. <laughs> you don't know what some of the relationships are like here. Oh gosh, the stress. Have you ever gone home from church more stressed than you came because, well, somebody did something? I know I have. I'm tearing my hair out because somebody said something, somebody did something, somebody didn't notice somebody, somebody did it again. And the Bible is very realistic. Just as Paul says of this church, I long for you, my joy, my crown. He goes on to talk about Yodi and Syntyche. Yodi and Syntyche, they're great names, but they've had a quarrel. And that quarrel has caused a problem. We know a bit about the Philippian church from Acts 16. It started as Paul went to Philippi and began to share the gospel, and what the first person that came to faith was a, a woman called Lydia. You might remember the story. Lydia 
began to believe in Jesus. She'd previously been excluded because she wasn't a Jew and she was on the fringes of the, the faith in this one God, but she came to believe. And not just that, as she was baptized, she opened her home. This woman who'd been on the outside of things was suddenly in the middle of things. The church was meeting in her home, Jews and Gentiles coming together. And the second person that we know that encountered the gospel in Philippi was a slave girl. Now, there was something else that was strange because Lydia was rich. She was a merchant, and here was a slave girl coming into her house, presumably, into one church that was one place. And then there was a jailer, the Philippian jailer, he coming into the house as well. And suddenly the church full of different people, rich and poor and slave and free, Jew and Gentile, men and women, and Yodi and Sintihi. They were obviously important women. Paul speaks very highly of them. He says, in the third verse, that they had contended by his side. They'd been co-workers with him. They'd been people sharing the gospel, possibly teaching and leading in the church. But they'd had a quarrel, these courageous women. A couple of things we can say about this quarrel. First of all, we don't know what it was about. And that's interesting, actually. We don't have a clue what it's about. In fact, it, whatever it was about, it was so unimportant, the subject of it, that Paul doesn't tell us anything about it. If it had been some big theological issue, Paul would have addressed it. If it had been some big issue about Christian ethics or, or what you're supposed to do, I'm sure Paul would have offered some teaching at this point, but there's none of that because the truth is it doesn't matter. Is that not the way of most quarrels in churches? <laughs> yeah, okay, Christians fight about all sorts of things. We've had debates and disagreements about theological matters and ethical matters and all the rest of it, but the average fight in the average church is about something that nobody can actually remember what it was about. Have you been involved in one of those fights before? Where there's been tension between you and somebody else and, and there's words exchanged and there's bad feeling and you go away from church not blessed but, but, but feeling all aggrieved about it and someone says, what was it about? Oh, I can't really remember. Because it's the trivial things, isn't it? I, I remember the, the fights we've had in church over the years over where the flowers go, what the tempo of the hymn is, the crazy things that end up causing problems. So the first thing we can say about this fight is it didn't actually matter what it was about, but the second thing is we can say it did matter. It caused major ripples. Paul is hundreds of miles away across the world and Epaphroditus comes to him and he shares him all the good news of what's going on in the church in Philippi and he tells him about this quarrel. That's how he knows. And it's so important that Paul writes back because whatever this quarrel is about, whatever is behind it doesn't matter, but what does matter is it's a threat to the peace of the church. It's a threat to the mission. It's a distraction. It's causing problems with that peace that he's calling for. So what's Paul's response? I plead with you, Yodia. I plead with you, Sintiki. Be of the one mind. I wonder as they, as, they, as they sat in the church in Corinth, and this letter was read out how they felt. I, I, I just imagine if there'd been a, a fight in, well, I was going to say I imagine if there'd been a fight in a church. Um, imagine when there's a fight in the church. If I, in the pulpit, said, um, can you and you sort this out from the front? Ah. But that's how seriously Paul takes it. But notice what he says to them. He doesn't say, right, you two, cam it. 
Or you two, can you just stay away from each other? Because every time you two come together, it's a personality clash. Can we get you on two different committees so you can just you know, stay away from one another and we'll have nice peace and quiet? Get out of my hair. Rather, he doesn't say that. He says, be of one mind in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, it might mean agree together. Sit down and talk it through till you can come to one mind, one position. But I, I, I think it's more than that. Be of one mind in the Lord. And the first thing that they're being asked to do is remember what they're about. They're about the Lord. Remember the mission that he's given you. Remember the peace that he's given you. Remember the charge that he's given you to be part of this modeling of new creation, to build up the church. And suddenly when you have that aim that is coming, the big picture, the fight over the flowers or the rota for the men's club or whatever else it is, just pales down into insignificance, doesn't it? Because you've got your eyes on the big picture. But it's even more than that, I think. Because you see, any human organization can do that. You know, you hear just now about parties. I'm not going to name any particular one, but there's people not getting on. And folk will say, well, for the good of the party, put that aside. Focus on winning the election. Focus on whatever else it is. Parties can do that, but you see, it's even more for that from the church. It's not just saying we have a job to do. Because he says, be of one mind in the Lord. In the Lord. And that takes us back to the second chapter. Where Paul said in chapter 2, verse 5, he said, let your mind be that of Christ Jesus. And he then goes on to tell the story, doesn't he, of Christ who was up with God, humbling himself, giving himself, sacrificing himself. What's this saying? Think about Jesus. Think about how Jesus didn't assert his rights. Think about Jesus who didn't come along and say, you can't do that to me, you can't treat me like that, but rather poured himself out in love, in humility, in sacrifice, in obedience. Be of that mind. Suddenly, your quarrel, your, your, your temper, your, oh, just pales into insignificance because we remember the Jesus in the center of it. Jesus who forgave. Jesus who forgave again. Jesus who forgave again. Jesus who sacrificed his own rights, didn't strut his stuff, didn't demand he had the last word because he was right after all, but gave himself for the peace of the world, for each other. Let that transform the situation. It's amazing how often in relationships simply someone's saying, let's pray. And you can feel the atmosphere change immediately because it brings everybody back to what it's about. Bringing Jesus right into the center of it. Quarrels happen in different places in the church. In fact, if we'd gone, so that I'm not picking on the woman here, if we'd gone to Corinthians, we could have found a quarrel between two men. In fact, a quarrel that was so bad that they took one another to court, and yet again, we're not told what it was about because it doesn't matter. Paul there, though, says, it's actually better that you're wronged than you wrong someone else. Just let it go. And what does Paul go on to say here in verse 3? He says to someone, called my true companion. We don't know who that was, but obviously, as Paul said, my true companion, someone in the church said he's talking about me. And he said to that person, help these women come together. Be a peacemaker. A church should be a place of peacemaking. 
where we're humble enough to take rebukes, where we're loving enough to confront the things that are wrong, where we're brave enough to build one another up, where we're vulnerable enough to say, yeah, it was me this time. It's you this time. We build one another up within it. Now, I do want to be clear on one point here. This does not mean that everything should be swept under the table for the interests of, of peace. Where there is abuse or there is bullying, or there's something that is way out of line, it is quite clear that if we are to bring Jesus into it, then we have a concern for justice and for the vulnerable and for the person that's being abused, and the church hasn't always got that right. But again, we are modeling Jesus. Paul goes on from here to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. I wonder that as Paul wrote that, he's got in mind that one of these days, these Christians are going to be Presbyterians and they're going to need to hear this twice. Rejoice. Don't be miserable. Rejoice. Enjoy. And interestingly, he's not saying here rejoice in your circumstances because you're having a good day in church or, 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 or a good day in one another's company because circumstances go up and down, but rather rejoice in the Lord. Words spoken from a prison cell. And he immediately goes on from there in verse 5 to say, let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness. That's an interesting concept. Our world, whatever it is just now, is not gentle, is it? It's harsh. We have a society at the moment where the place seems always to be pointing fingers and raking mud, doing people down, putting people in their place, telling them why they're hypocrites and they're talking nonsense and they've no right to say that and they're the worst possible people. We do it to our leaders and our leaders do it to each other. We name call, we're cynical, we, we write people off, we put labels on people that they're thisophobic or thataphobic and so we can reject them and we ignore them and we can sideline them. What would it be to be a community of gentleness? Of treating each other gently, of wanting to build each other up rather than knock each other down. What would it be if the church was known for its gentleness? Can I just challenge you in this particular day that gentleness is sensitivity to other folk, and maybe there are things that we need to be sensitive to right now in our midst of our lockdown. One of the huge issues for many people is going to be isolation and loneliness, and not just the people we necessarily think are isolated and lonely. Gentleness perhaps leaves us sensitive to that. Pick up the phone. Drop that card. Go the extra mile. If you're an elder, is this the week to phone around that district again? Just check folk are okay. Maybe they don't have any problems, but maybe just to hear a voice and know you care. That's going to matter more than anything else. That is gentleness that brings joy. And let it be evident to all. That's the interesting thing. I wonder what was evident to everybody at the moment was actually this was a church full of people falling out. This was a church full of women quarreling or men quarreling. But what would it be if our sign to the nations that God is at work within us is our gentleness? And not just with each other, but with a world where there is so much anxiety, so much of people feeling, uh, or sitting in their tribes, that we met them with gentleness. And in the midst of all of that, says Paul, verse 6, that we read at the beginning of our service, bring all your anxieties 
all your concerns to God. I, I, I wonder that's important for relationships too because we tend to work them out on each other, don't we? Our frustrations and our pains. How often do we take them out on the people we love? Bring them to God. Let Him fill you with peace. Let Him, you know, His forgiving and, and your belonging and your transformation through it. And then Paul moves in verse 8 to something that is so practical that I think it's worth writing out in full and putting in our Bibles, writing out in full and putting it in our diaries, writing out it in full and putting it beside the internet connection that we've got, writing it out in full and putting it beside the newspapers that we read or however else we get our news because it is really transformative transformational. Paul says this, brothers and sisters, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, I, I, I just would want to suggest that that is absolutely transformational, because what does our world do just now? It would say, whatever is false, whatever is wrong, whatever is impure, whatever is ugly, whatever is obscene, whatever is shocking, whatever is divisive, whatever is cynical, and whatever is critical, let's magnify such things. Let's share and retweet and whatever else we do until we all share the anger. How that breaks community and love. Christian called to do something completely different. to focus on love, to do it with gentleness, to engage with graciousness. In the midst of lockdown, let us do the opposite. Not by breaking the rules or bending them or twisting them, but by living with Jesus in the center, with imagination and gentleness, love and longing to build up the other. And may the God of peace be in the midst of our church and our families and our home and our community.